So darn you, Ted Kresnick. I was almost certain that uh, I was going to be able to make it through this without crying. But when a man's man like Ted Kresnick gets clamped in front of an entire group of gathered people, it's hard. And then Scott Elder with his eulogizing, I didn't know I was dying. But apparently, apparently (laughs) there's some things I don't know about where we're going next. I was thinking just briefly before the service about some things that have changed in seven years. And uh, I thought, you know, I, I, I moved here with four kids. We have a fifth child. He's the one that you guys watch every week when we dismiss for Kids Church Sprint out of here. Uh, the friendliest, sweetest little guy, Silas. So we have an extra child since we've come. Uh, and uh, I was thinking about the fact that I came a baby-faced pastor. I had a clean-shaven face, and now I've got a big old beard. Thank you for allowing me to grow a beard. Some congregations might not have done that. Um, I, was, I was thinking about a lot of things. Um, I was thinking about uh, the fact that when, when we came to this church, uh, we were just so green. And you guys have been so absolutely gracious with us. Like, I have some strange, strange ideas about things and and at every moment that I would pitch a strange idea we would check to make sure it was biblical like at least it, the bible wasn't forbidding the idea and then you guys were willing to try it and uh, I'm just so thankful for that you have allowed me to I hope you would think this is true to grow as a pastor and uh, not every church does that a lot of churches are very demanding but uh, this church has been such a nurturing um, kind environment one other thing, I came here running marathons. Like, I just was a few years off of running the Boston Marathon. I was thinking about what has changed, you know. And now I am the king of the elliptical glider. <laughs> and I'm telling you, that's all I can handle because I got up yesterday and tried to go on a run and it was pathetic. Oh, man, seven years changes a lot. I came eagle-eyed and now I have uh, four eyes. So lots, lots changes. Lots of things change over for our seven years, so um, we need to get to the sermon. And actually, I wanted to give a nod out to Patty Guestwine. Uh, when I preached my candidating sermon here, I said this, and I think it's important that we say it this morning. And Patty always reminded me that this was something she appreciated. But uh, this service is sweet, and I'm, I appreciate the fact that many people have given our family a nod and, and wanted to communicate how much you have appreciated us as, as a, a pastor's family. Thank you for that. But let's not get distracted, because this is not about me, and it's not about Natalie, it's not about our kids. Uh, What we're about to do right now is far more important. Let's not get distracted. Let's focus our attention on God and on his word. So, okay, that just needs to be said, and uh, we need to move forward with that in mind. So the church at Rome... Uh, was quarreling. Uh, They were fighting. And in his letter to that congregation, Paul addresses the squabble. Uh, They were dividing over what could or couldn't be consumed or eaten. They were dividing over what days were considered holy and what days were not. The church was finding all kinds of things to argue about. They were divided. We might be tempted to dismiss their squabbles as juvenile and below us. 
as something that we would never do because uh, we're far more mature. Those are our kids' kinds of arguments. But just a brief look back at church history would tell us that we are the kinds of people who can divide over very similar issues. So just think about whether or not people are supposed to consume alcohol, right? And the divisions that pop up over something like that. Or think about the divisions that have been created in recent church history over whether or not we should work at all on Sunday morning. What days are more holy than other days? Now, we need to be careful because the kinds of divisions that were popping up among the Romans are the kinds of divisions that easily pop up amongst us. We need to be careful. There's a warning here for us about divisiveness, not just a warning for the church at Rome some 2,000 years ago. And at this point, you might wonder why I have chosen to parachute into the end of the letter that Paul wrote to the Romans, and especially into a text addressing fighting or disunity in the church. You think, what's Jason's rationale for, for picking this passage for his last sermon? I could have chosen a passage like this because I'm suspicious that there are divisions among you that are are beginning to form. You know, a pastor might uh, pick a passage like this to preach because he wants to address divisions that exist. Um, But actually, I think we have been blessed uh, in the last seven years with a, a divine unity, a unity that only comes from God. I actually think it's quite the opposite, that, that we are, are highly united in this congregation, especially compared to other congregations that I've seen and even been a part of. We have great unity here. I, I, our staff is so united. We just love each other. We pray for each other. We weep with each other. Our elder team is incredibly united uh, we, we just went out and threw axes for our last uh, elder meeting. How can you not be united when you throw axes together? And um, I was the worst at axe throwing, I have to admit. But nobody killed each other with their axes. We are incredibly united as an elder team. And as a congregation, we are pursuing the mission that God has set before this church with great Unity. So let there be no confusion. I did not choose this text, this passage of scripture, because I am suspicious that there are some divisions that are beginning to arise among us. On the contrary, I selected it because I don't see such divisions. I selected this passage because I don't see divisions. Friends, in the midst of this transition, when my family will will pick up and move to the city of Chicago, and you will have a change-up to some extent in leadership and how things are done, there will be plenty of opportunities for disunity. There will be plenty of opportunities for division. And precisely because unity is one of the great strengths of this congregation, this church, be aware that the devil will make the most out of every opportunity to sow discord and distrust among you because that's what he does. He wants to attack the great strength that God has given this church. 
So I want to take this last opportunity of studying uh, God's word with you as a gathered body of believers to encourage you to protect the gift of unity which the Lord has worked among us so graciously, so lovingly worked among us over the previous seven years. And because, and this is important, because we have not arrived when it comes to unity, because we are not yet glorified, because we could always do better, I want to take this opportunity to urge all of us to commit ourselves to the pursuit of unity in Christ until the Lord calls us home. I want to challenge all of us to think about unity for the glory of God and to pursue it until the day we die as a gathered group of believers here at Community Evangelical Free Church. So let's take the next few minutes together to hear God's voice in Scripture. Here's what Paul, inspired by the Holy Spirit, records for us in Romans chapter 15, beginning in verse 1. Hear the word of the Lord. We who are strong have an obligation to bear with the failings of the weak and not to please ourselves. Let each of us please his neighbor for his good to build him up. For Christ did not please himself. But as it is written, the reproaches of those who reproached you fell on me. For whatever was written in former days was written for our instruction that through endurance and through the encouragement of the scriptures we might have hope. May the God of endurance and encouragement grant you to live in such harmony with one another in accord with Christ Jesus that together you may with one voice glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, welcome one another as Christ has welcomed you for the glory of God. This is the word of God. Thanks be to God for it. And I'll invite you now to pray with me before we begin to study God's word together. Will you bow your heads? Heavenly Father, I thank you for this passage of Scripture. It's so instructive. It has instructed me this week as I've opened it up and and studied it. It's convicted me of areas where I need to pursue your glory more closely, more intensely when it comes to unity and love. And we as a gathered body of Christians, as a church, a local church, we ask that right now you would open up your word for us, that it would not be my voice that we hear, but your spirit would stir up your voice in our hearts and in our minds and that you would transform us and that you would draw us closer to you and therefore closer together for your glory. Amen. Well, you, you by now probably know how this goes, right? Because I don't know that I've preached a sermon where I didn't give you a roadmap. And how many points typically do I have? That's three or two. Good, better guess, two. It's going to be two today. So you know how this goes. It shouldn't be a surprise. I always come up with like a roadmap of two points or three points, right? 
And today is no different. In fact, I've got two questions that I think we have to ask of this passage if we're going to understand it. So let's, let's talk about those questions. First, how do we know love? That's the first question we have to pursue and have to ask of this passage if we're going to, I think, understand what's going on here. How do we know love? How do we know what it means to love others? That's the first question. And the second, how do we glorify God? How do we glorify God? What does and what doesn't bring God glory? We have to ask that question of this passage. So let's consider what today's text says about each of these. First, how do we know love? How do we know love? And today in the secular world that we live in, the secular West, uh, there's an assumption that love is self-evident. That we just know love. Like you just know it when you see it. Like it's a part of human DNA to know what love is. Except that it is not a part of our DNA. It's not just natural to us. You see, love is learned. What it is to love must be taught. And not everybody learns it or defines it the same way. In fact, what we regularly assume to be self-evident is usually culturally inherited. And in the West, it's inherited largely from a Christian worldview. I wonder if you know that. In the West, the ideas that we have about what love is has been informed by Christianity, by the Bible, by the church. It's not a secular thing. So let me give you some examples. Love for one's neighbor. That's Christian. Love for one's enemy. Very Christian. Love for the vulnerable and disenfranchised. Also a Christian worldview. Love as self-sacrifice. Could there be anything that is more Christian than love as self-sacrifice? It is at the heart of the gospel, the heart of the message of Christianity. That God himself put on flesh and died to take away our sins so that we might walk with him again. Love as self-sacrifice is very, very Christian. But why... Is this kind of love any better than other culturally learned kinds of love? That's a hard question for our non-Christian secular friends to answer. Why is one kind of love better than another kind of love? Why should we love others when it's hard? Why is self-sacrificial love better than self-serving Love, if self-serving love can be called love at all. These are, again, very, very difficult questions for our non-Christian, secular friends to answer. They just are. But as believers, we have an answer. And it pops up right here in this passage. As believers... We have an answer, and it's an ultimate, universal answer. Paul tells us why this kind of love is better. He tells us how it has been defined, how we know it. Look at the beginning of our passage. Look at what Paul says about love and about why we love in verse 1, 2, and 3. 
We who are strong have an obligation to bear with the failings of the weak and not to please ourselves. Let each of us please his neighbor for his good, to build him up. For Christ did not please himself, but as it is written, the reproaches of those who reproached you fell on me. I want you to notice some things here. Notice Paul begins by describing what most everyone we know would agree to be beautiful, loving behavior. Standing by someone without any selfish motives when they screw things up. Well, that's love. Everybody would say that that's love. Meeting a neighbor's need in order that she may grow and be built up. Well, that's love. That's a good thing to do. Everybody would say that. Both Christian and non-Christian alike would agree that these are expressions of love. But why? Why do we know that these are expressions of love? Well, Paul tells us why those of us who call ourselves Christians must love this way and must define love this way. Notice the the four that begins verse 3. That indicates the beginning of a purpose clause. In other words, what follows is the reason we must live this way. It's the reason we know what love looks like. Paul says, for, you got to act this way. He says, for Christ did not please himself, but as it is written, the reproaches of those who reproached you fell on me. Friends, as believers We must live this way in our relationships with others because this is the way that God has lived in the person and the work of Jesus Christ in relationship to us. He suffered and died in our place for our benefit. He bore all our sin and our shame on the cross. God loved us in this way, so we must consequently love others this way in return. You see, Christ's sacrifice is how we know what love is. Christ's treatment of us is how we know what love is, what love looks like. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son. We've experienced it. Not just from a person, but from our God. I had a good non-Christian friend in Jefferson City and he uh, had an argument with another one of my good friends and that the friend that he was arguing with happened to be a Christian. So one night we were at uh, a little Irish pub in Jefferson City and we were talking over a drink and uh, it was, I was surprised. He looked at me and he asked me, What do you think I should do in this argument? So I have this non-Christian friend who's asking me, a Christian pastor, what I thought he should do in relationship to this other friend of ours. And uh, at this point, you're thinking, this is the perfect question for a Christian pastor to get from a non-Christian. Oh, Jason's going to knock this one out of the park. You're going to be disappointed. I looked at him and I said, I don't know. I don't know what you should do. 
I don't know what your worldview would require of you. I don't know how you should move forward. But I do know precisely how our other friend, the Christian friend, must move forward. He must try to love you. He must try to reconcile with you. He must try to forgive you because that is how his God has treated him. He has no other choice. It's non-negotiable. I tell you, uh, I don't really know how he received it, but I can tell you this much about that interaction with my non-Christian friend. It was the clearest expression of the difference faith in Jesus Christ makes when it comes to forgiveness and love for others. Without a doubt, my non-Christian friend felt and understood the clear and practical implications of the gospel that night. That Christianity must change us in how we love and how we forgive. And as we're going to see in a minute, how we are united with our brothers and sisters in Christ. And friends, as believers, we mustn't forget these implications of our faith in Jesus Christ. He is how we know what love is. We've been treated with grace. We've been treated with mercy. We've been treated with love. Though we were his enemies. And therefore Paul reminds us that we must treat each other through faith in Jesus Christ. And by the power of the Holy Spirit working in us in the the same manner. We have to treat each other this way because this is how our God has treated us. Again, this is a non-negotiable of the Christian faith. The thing that gives me greatest pause as a pastor about somebody's salvation is when they refuse to work towards reconciliation. I I have trouble seeing how somebody understands the gospel of Jesus Christ if they will have nothing to do with reconciliation. Trying to make peace. It doesn't mean it's always easy. It doesn't mean it goes back to the way it was before. It just means that this is at the heart of what it means to follow Jesus. And we cannot deny it. We cannot reject it. Well, before we move on to our our second question, I'm going to shamelessly plug what we're doing right now. And I've been doing this a lot lately, but I think it's a lesson that we have to learn and regain in the church today. I'm going to shamelessly plug studying the Bible as a gathered church. What we're doing right now is really, really important. Did you notice that there's a second four? following the one that we just looked at in verse 3. Verse 4 has a 4. That's a lot of 4s. So verse 3 begins with a 4. Verse 4 begins with a 4. Let me read verse 3 and 4 together, and you can see what I'm talking about. So Paul explains loving behavior, and then he tells us why we should do it. For Christ did not please himself, but as it is written, the reproaches of those who reproached you fell on me. For... Whatever was written in former days was written for our instruction that through endurance and through the encouragement of the scriptures, we might have hope. What's going on here? Well, if Jesus is the way we know how we must love, if Jesus is the way we know what love is, then the scriptures are how we know Jesus. 
That's important. I'm going to say it again. If Jesus is how we define love and know love, then the scriptures are how we know Jesus. You see, Paul quotes Psalm 69, verse 9, and applies it to Jesus here, unashamedly. just says this verse from this Old Testament psalm is about Christ. It ultimately speaks about him, about his sacrificial mission to save sinners like you and like me. This is about Jesus, Paul says. Now, there's so much that could be said at this point, and we just don't have time to dig into all of it. There's so much important stuff going on here. But let me at least say this to you. As we open the Bible together to prayerfully and faithfully study it on a Sunday morning, Something mysterious and divine takes place. It's not merely an academic exercise. Like you don't just come here to put facts in your head. It isn't something common that's going on. Something mundane. Like you can just skip it and not be affected by it. It is nothing less when we get together around the scriptures and hear them preach than the voice of God speaking into our lives as a gathered body, a united body of believers serving Christ Jesus. There's something transformative that takes place in these gatherings that cannot just be tossed off and forgotten about as if we're some kind of lone rangers in this Christian life. That's an American idea. It is not a biblical idea. So I just want you to understand how important this is. Now look, I, w- I want to explain it a little more to you. Psalm 69 was, was probably composed about a thousand years before Paul wrote Romans. I want you to pay attention to something here. This is, this is fascinating to me. A thousand years have passed since Psalm 69 was written. But whom does Paul say it was written for? For our instruction. That through endurance and the encouragement of scripture, we might have hope. Notice the pronouns. Our, we. A thousand years have passed. But Paul says, this is for you, Romans. It was written for us. And I would say, echoing what he says, it was written for us too today. God recorded this for us. He preserved his holy word as we've read it here this morning and we're studying it right now for us. This letter was designed to be read in front of the gathered body of believers. You know, it's sort of the first telecasted sermon or something, right? Like I couldn't just, you know, get Tim Keller up on a screen where he's a thousand miles away. Paul's like, I'll just write you a letter and then you're going to read it in front of the congregation. This, is, this was for them gathered together. They'd hear the voice of God. And nothing different is happening right now. It's for you that you would hear the voice of God speaking into your lives. Don't neglect the corporate study of scripture. Don't forsake the endurance, encouragement, and hope that God promises to bring you through it. The preaching of the word. when We gather together as believers. Well, let's consider our, our second and final question. I'll be brief here. How do we glorify God? How do we glorify God? This is 
where we begin to see the importance of, of unity. Look at the passage with me. Look at what Paul says, or maybe I could say prays for next. Verse 5. May the God of endurance and encouragement grant you to live in such harmony with one another in accord with Christ Jesus that together you may with one voice glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, welcome one another as Christ has welcomed you for the glory of God. Just consider the unity language which infuses these three verses of a prayer. Paul begins by asking that God would allow the believers, quote, to live in harmony. In fact, he's not asking for them to merely exhibit harmony, but, quote, such harmony that together all the individuals of the congregation would worship the Lord with one voice. Now, that's significant harmony. That's significant unity. And from where does such unity of worship and praise come? Well, it comes from being, quote, in accord. Or you might say in harmony. Or you might say in unison. Or you might say in agreement with Christ Jesus. That's where unity comes from. As you cling to Jesus Christ. As you place your faith in Jesus Christ as you are in harmony with Jesus Christ, there also unity will be. You'll find unity with your brothers and sisters who are doing the same thing through Jesus Christ. Paul's prayer is all about unity. And this isn't just a Paul thing. Like, you know, I'm I'm making more of Paul than I should make of Paul. No, this was big for Jesus as well. He was really concerned about the unity of his followers. So much so that on the night that Jesus was betrayed, as he's looking forward to the next day and saying, oh, that's the cross. That's torture. That's a death penalty. That's my crucifixion. And worse still, that's when the wrath of God is going to be poured out on me. When Jesus is staring 24 hours away at the cross... He prays in the garden. And one of the things he prays for is unity. I mean, how important does unity have to be if when you're about to face your death and the wrath of God being poured out upon you, that's what you pray to God for, for your followers. Super important unity was for Jesus. Just look at a few lines from his prayer. John 17, beginning in verse 20. Unity all over this. And incredible unity. Listen to the kind of unity he's praying for. He says, I do not ask for these only, meaning the 12 disciples or those who are following him currently, no, but also for those who will believe in me through their word, i.e. you, today, that they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. The glory that you have given me, I have given to them, that they may be one, even as we are one. I in them, and you in me, that they may become perfectly one. So that the world may know that you sent me, and love them, even as you loved me. 
obviously, unity is significant and extremely important, incredibly important. It testifies to the world about the truth of Christianity. It testifies to the world about the identity of Jesus, that he is the Christ, that he is the living son of God, the savior of the world. That's what Jesus is saying here. That our unity is our greatest apologetic. That our unity is our greatest testimony to an unbelieving world. That's pretty significant. That's pretty important. But we need to understand what unity really is. Our culture doesn't know what it really is. Our culture tells us That unity is uniformity. So we must all say such and such a thing is right or such and such a thing is wrong. We must all agree at every turn. Or else we don't have unity. But friends, that's not unity in any way, shape, or form. That actually is the opposite of unity. It's ugly. Uniformity is the kind of thing that evil regimes try to press upon a people. Just think back on history. I won't even mention them. You have to look exactly this way. That's ugly. That's not unity. Real unity is loving someone when you don't agree with them. Real unity is believing that someone is 100% wrong and yet you will not abandon that person. You will not leave them. You will walk with them even though they are 100% wrong. Even though they say things that are repugnant to you, you will stick by them. That is real unity. Anyone can hang around with people who don't say anything they disagree with. Everybody can love people who who are like they are. Jesus says some things about that during his earthly ministry. He looks at those who are supposed to be following God, his Jewish listeners, and he says, even the Gentiles can live that way. There's nothing extraordinary about that. There's nothing divine about that when you like somebody who's like you. That's not real unity. It's not special, it's not beautiful. So what Paul is praying for in this passage, what Jesus is praying for in John 17, and what I am going to pray for in just a few minutes is unity, real unity. This is what it will look like. That there would be no racial divides among us, even though there may be great difference in the kinds of people who are a part of this congregation. Every different kind of person on the face of the earth here. But no racial divides. That's what real unity looks like. That there'd be no political divides among us. Oh, there may be more than one party represented in these pews. But those political views are not going to be the kind of thing that will divide us. See, that difference of political view and the unity in Christ, that's real unity. You may not agree on your politics. But your brothers and sisters in Christ. That's real unity. 
that there would be no class divides among us. That we might have rich people and poor people. We might have well-educated people and lesser-educated people. And yet we love one another. That's one of the great blessings of the church in my time as a Christian has been that I have fellowship with people whom I would never fellowship with otherwise. Amen? I mean, there are people here I'm looking at right now, and I'm like, there's no way outside of this divinely organized body that I would ever be your friend. It doesn't mean I don't love you. It just means the love that I have for you and the fellowship that I keep with you is a sign of God's unity among us. And that's beautiful. I want us to exhibit here at Community Evangelical Free Church and really the world. I want Every church that really follows Jesus around the world, I want them to exhibit a unity over a great diversity. A closeness, even though we have nothing, as far as the world can tell, in common. And should be enemies, in fact. I want, I want the world to see that in the church. For there is, Ephesians chapter 4, one body and one spirit. Just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call. There's one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all who is over all and through all and in all. And there is no divide. There is no divide that can stand against God's unity. May the church exhibit that kind of unity. As we close today, I'm going to call all the elders and staff to come forward. I want all of the elder board, even if you're a prospective elder, you, you might not, you know, like, I just want everybody. Come on up. Not, every, not, every, not all, just the elders and staff. Otherwise, we're going to have like a fire hazard up here at the front of the church. So you got to humor me here. This is, I get to do things because this is the last sermon I get to preach. You can't really do it. I mean, you have no, you have no power over me anymore. This should, this should scare you. So I'm going to ask them to come forth. All right. I'm going to ask you if you're able to stand right now as a congregation. And I'm going to ask that you would let me, as I close, pray over you. Pray for the love of God to characterize you as a church. Pray for the unity of the Spirit to be something that the outside world sees in you and wonders about and is attracted to strangely. Here, you guys can slide slide over here. Slide in. The, let's balance this thing out. You know I'm kind of anal about these things. You gotta, can't all be, we're gonna, the whole sanctuary is gonna tip to the right if you guys don't. So I, I just want to pray for these things. After I'm done praying over you, we're going to have a, a final song that we get to sing in harmony, hopefully, some of us. So will you bow your heads with me? Heavenly Father, I pray for Community Evangelical Free Church. I pray that at this moment, this transitional moment, they would look back and they would praise you and honor you for the ways that you've been at work among them and how you have brought them love and unity in the spirit 
how you have knit us as a congregation together. I pray that they would look back and see that and praise your name. Thank you, Lord, for that. And I pray that they would be willing to commit themselves right now to at every moment where there could possibly be an offense or something that they don't like to really uh, say, no, 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 no. More important than my likes or dislikes or whether I'm offended is the unity of the body of Christ for the testimony of the gospel. That they would commit themselves right now to that in the future. And that they would also look into the future with excitement and joy, anticipating what you Heavenly Father, will work among them for your glory, for your honor, for your praise, that the kingdom of God would move into this city that you love. I pray for them in that. I pray for great unity in that. May you, Lord, the God of encouragement, the God of endurance, grant this church to live in such harmony with one another in accord with Christ Jesus that together they may with one voice glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. That they may glorify you. And that they may welcome one another even as Christ has welcomed them. For your glory. Amen.